a few months ago, Ford and I were sitting down talking about what we were going to do in the fall and having different conversations. And he said, yeah, I really want to do a, a book. I want to return to a, a good book and go all the way through, preach all the way through it. And I said, yeah, let's get a good book that can maybe even carry us through Advent. And he was like, yeah, what are some thoughts? And I was like, oh, Romans would be great. And here I was thinking, I knew I'd get to preach maybe one or two. I knew Eric was going to preach a few. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll get Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then Ford was like, oh, I'm going out of town. So uh, you and Eric get these passages. And then I quickly realized that I had made a mistake because these are really heavy passages. Eric did the heavy lifting last week. And as I dived in, dove in, I don't know, whatever. Um, I recognize, oh, this is equally as heavy, that the uh, wrath of God theme is going to continue. Paul's building an argument. There is really good news. The entirety of the book of Romans is about the gospel. So it's obviously pointing to the good news of Christ. Uh, But Paul is building an argument here. And those first few chapters, he builds it real well. And uh, in that, there's a fair amount of conviction. And today's convicting passage is pointing inward. So obviously last week we saw this passage that maybe many of us are familiar with that um, there's these group of people who not only do unrighteous things, they exchange the natural law of God for things that are unnatural. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, look, not only do they do what is evil, but they celebrate what is evil. Well, this one's pointing inward to a different group of people. This is a different group of people that find themselves a bit self-righteous. And Paul says, not so fast. So when you look at Romans 1, I think a lot of times in our modern world, we Christians can look at the modern world and say, it is going off the rails. Probably, if you're sitting in this room, if you're like me, and if not, then you're a better person than me. It's, it's a daily occurrence that I see the world going off the rails. And it's really easy for me to say, look at them, not only doing what's evil, but uh, giving praise to the, those who do evil things. And chapter two hits, and Paul says, not so fast. All right? And that is a really important thing for us to grasp today, where Paul is going to start to say, I recognize that some of you reading this letter can see that pagan culture in Rome And be really quick to judge. But remember, you're not the judge. God is the judge. I think that's really important for the hopeful aspect of the passage. That God is in fact the judge and not us. But it's uh, it's one that I hope will hit us and then point us to some, some hope in the end. So we look at Romans 2. Paul continues this line of argumentation where he says, we are without excuse. So he says that in, in Romans 1, that man is without excuse to, uh, for believing in God because of creation and conscience. That's sort of the, the grand argument of chapter 1, that we can recognize that there's a God because things don't just pop into existence, especially things that seem so well designed. So be, even by living in creation, we can recognize a design and an order to creation. So we recognize that a God exists, but then also conscience, that within Every human being innately is this desire to find what is good. There's this desire for justice, this desire for fairness, right? All of those kids who came up and competed with me have a natural innate desire for things to be fair. 
And that's written on the human heart. So Paul tells us in chapter one, man's without excuse for this pattern of behaviors. And yet we do it. And he repeats this argumentation to start chapter two, that man is without excuse. And where he now moves to is for those moralizers who think themselves better than the people in chapter one. So we probably often look at the people in chapter one. We can tie different cultural movements in our modern day to the people of chapter one who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And if we're not careful, we're going to be a part of that same group in chapter two that Paul then goes on to condemn. Those who pass judgment when we are not the judge. And so there's probably a few things going on here. Uh, Paul is um, in this passage kind of interchangeably speaking to two groups. And it's because in the Roman church, these two groups are pretty well divided. And there's a there's a historical reason for that. So um, you have a group of Gentiles who likely are uh, have been converted to Christianity coming from uh, a Roman pagan past and. It's possible that many of them come from a Stoic past, right? So there is this philosophy of Stoicism that takes deep root in the Roman Empire. And Stoicism is all about uh, a denial of self, a drive towards virtue. Um, But it is a a denial of self and a drive towards virtue that is um, internally driven, right? So there's a group of Gentiles. There's also a group of, of Jews that have become Christians likely reading this letter. Now, the reason that divide is so plain in the Roman church is because under Emperor Nero, there is a season in which all of the Jews are expelled from the city of Rome. Okay, so for a while, imagine if half if this half of the church was expelled from Raleigh and this half of the church no longer lived here and came to church for a while. And this half of the church persisted. Then this half of the church comes back together, right? So that half of the church that's Jewish has been forming deep Jewish Christian root patterns. They've come back into this Roman church where they have mostly been Gentiles. And so Paul is hitting all of this because he wants this unity in the church and he recognizes the unifying factor in the church is the gospel. So that's kind of historically what's happening here. But he knows in order to do that, he has to show not only the Gentile, but also the Jew, that no amount of self-righteousness will save you. No amount of moralizing, attempting to be a man or woman of virtue on your own is going to get you there. And in fact, the worst thing you could be is someone who finds themselves righteous who finds themselves virtuous and condemns judgment at others that you yourself don't find righteous or virtuous. And that's what's happening in Romans 2. So when Paul says that God is the judge and you're not, what is the reason for that? The reason for that is what Paul is writing, you and I cannot be judge of other people Because we do the things that other people do, right? And so in passing judgment, the unrighteousness is actually amplified within the sinful man passing judgment on other sinners. Because not only are we sinners just like them, but in our passing of judgment, we are growing our own sin within us because it's growing the self-righteousness. But God is the judge. 
And why is that somewhat of a gift, a peace for us, for God to be the judge and for us not to be the judge? Well, because God is always going to judge righteously and God is always going to judge impartially. And God's judgment is doing something. It is purposeful. His righteous judgment, his impartial judgment is always meant to point us to what Paul tells us. It's always meant to point us to repentance. How often, if you're like me, have you been in that seat of passing judgment on others where the judgment you're passing, if you were honest with yourself and if I'm honest with myself, is not meant for their repentance. It's not meant for their good, but it's meant for their condemnation. But God judges impartially and righteously And his judgments are meant to lead people to repentance. That's the first four chapters of this book that we'll be going through. That God, that Paul is pointing out that the gospel, for it to take deep root in our hearts, must first force us to come to grips with the fact that we are sinful and broken and unable to regenerate ourselves. Right? So for the Jew in this passage, he says, no amount of following the law by itself apart from the grace of God is going to afford you the opportunity to save yourself or regenerate yourself. To the Gentile in this passage, no amount of stoic pursuit of virtue is going to allow you to regenerate yourself, to save yourself. And if you're the great stoic philosopher, if you are a leader in the synagogue, And if you are one of the people from chapter one, all of us have the same need. All of us have this need of Christ's salvific work, God's grace and the gift of faith that every one of us has that need. When we pass judgment on others, we don't do so impartially. And I think the best way we can recognize this is in our pattern of forgiveness. When we do something wrong to others, we really want them to forgive us very quickly, right? But when others do something wrong to us, we are not so quick to afford them that very thing that if we were in their shoes, we would want. And what Paul is saying here in chapter two is you are often in those shoes, I am often in those shoes. When we are passing condemnation and judgment on others, in our pattern of forgiveness, we recognize when we mess up, we want quick forgiveness. When somebody messes up against us, we are very slow to give forgiveness. And it's because we're not impartial. We want the peace that comes from something like forgiveness when you've wronged someone. And yet we tend to withhold that when somebody has wronged us. It's because we're not impartial. And as Paul points out, we're not righteous. There is a need that we have as human beings for God to restore us. That is the very aspect of the gospel that he's going to work towards, right? That we actually need Christ's salvific work. We need the grace of the sacraments. We need the the power of the Holy Spirit to restore and regenerate us. We cannot do it ourselves. And so no amount of stoic philosophy, no amount of following the law, For the law's sake, apart from the grace of God, is going to get us there. In fact, what it'll show us is further condemnation. Because the more self-righteous we find ourselves, the more we are heaping condemnation 
upon ourselves. And so this is a tough passage, but Paul is working towards something. As Eric pointed out last week when we read John 3, right? That passage that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and that God did not come, uh, did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world, but in fact saved, uh, to save the world, right? And when we pass judgment, we're participating in this false gospel. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be discerning and that we shouldn't be honest about sin and brokenness, either in our lives or in the lives of others. But the reason we never sit as eternal judge is because of our lack of impartiality and our lack of righteousness, which means we often don't judge other people in a manner that is meant for repentance, right? So if you go and you're uh, trapped in a pattern of sin and you sit down with Ford and you say, I really want to get out of this pattern of sin. If you are in such a pattern of sin, I'm guessing that Ford is not going to say, oh, it's okay. It's, it's fine. You're not actually sinning. Ford will likely affirm, yeah, that's a pattern of sin. And that pattern of sin needs to be expelled from your life because that pattern of sin is actually draining you of life and repentance will lead you to life, right? And that's the, that's the very gospel at work, that you and I have patterns of sin, patterns of behavior, and we're, we're in need of a restoration, in need to be pointed to the truth of the gospel. And in our act of confessing that, we do that every week, and we do so corporately. When we, if we get to the confession today, I know it's different, but it's the one I've memorized, we say we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. That all of us corporately recognize nobody in here is on a higher plane of holiness or righteousness compared to another. A great, uh, a great analogy I once heard for that of why it is so silly for us to pass self-righteous judgment on others, especially uh, when we don't intend for it to lead to repentance. So confessing to your pastor is a good thing. His work pastorally is going to be to point you to repentance, which is point you to life, Right. But when we do so regularly and we're not pointing people to that, but we sit on our high horse and think we're better than other people. uh, A great analogy I once heard from Tim Keller is if he went down to the Empire State Building, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. If he went down to the Empire State Building with one of his grandsons, a three-year-old grandson, and both of them reached their hands up as high as they could, he would be closer to the top of the Empire State Building than his grandson, technically speaking. He is closer to reaching the top of the Empire State Building than his grandson. But what's the ridiculous nature of that analogy? What is he pointing out in that reductio ad absurdum there? He'll never reach the top of the Empire State Building. Regardless of how he thinks he's closer to reaching the top than his grandson, he's not reaching the top by himself. It's impossible, right? So he needs something to get him up to the top. He needs an elevator and whatnot. And and that is ultimately why we aren't to pass judgment. And it's a good news that God is the judge. Because we can trust that not only is he impartial, not only is he righteous, but everything he judges is intended to point us to repentance, to lead us to life. And so I want to pivot from this because I think it ties quite well 
into John 10. So flip over with me to John 10 if you have your Bibles. Or click over if it's an app. Now often, if you've heard this, uh, John 10, 10 is a very popular verse. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that's certainly where we're going to focus today. But I think often on a brief reading of this passage, we can see that thief character as uh, Satan. Okay, so Jesus has set himself up against Satan. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I don't think that's the proper reading of the passage. If you read in John 9, as it flows into John 10, it is important to remember that we added, human beings added, chapter and verse later, right? So it it is a story that is flowing one from another. So Jesus has just healed a blind man in chapter nine. The Jewish leaders are very unhappy with his healing of the blind man. And in John 10, he is then turning to talk to those unhappy leaders and to the, the people around him. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, That man is a thief and a robber. So who is this thief and this robber? Well, he seems to be pointing to the religious leaders of the day in the synagogue who have taken the law and said, because we follow the law, we're holy and righteous. Everybody who doesn't follow the law is condemned and we can therefore pass judgment. In all of these stories and Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees of his day, you often see that. Pattern. They are quick to condemn Christ's behavior. They're quick to pass judgment. We can think of the story of the woman caught in adultery, where they bring her before Jesus and say, the law says we, we, we can stone her, right? That quickness to take the law and use it to condemn. The problem is they are the very characters that Paul has in mind in that back half of chapter two, because they find that the law in and of itself has saved them. And it hasn't, that it actually is pointing to their, it is illuminating their actual condemnation. And so Jesus says, those people, the thief, have come in through these other doors to to try to lead you to life and lead you to hope. And you could say the stoic philosophy of uh, the Roman Empire, as Paul is writing, you could say the uh, pharisaical Judaism of that day, a part that is detached from God, because it's uh, of its manipulative understanding of the law and what it's meant to be doing in our hearts. And that's why we touched on the Deuteronomy passage um, earlier uh, when we were reading. And so these thieves have come in and they're passing judgment and they're not only passing judgment on others, but they are heaping condemnation upon themselves in so doing. So Jesus says, Again, so go down to verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so when we look at this passage in Romans 2, and we tie it into Jesus's words in John 10, 10, we recognize the reason we ought not to judge is because we are not righteous. We are not impartial. 
we have no authority to pass and heap condemnation of souls on other people. And here's the thing. You have no authority to heap condemnation on yourself. And so for some of us in this room, perhaps it's really easy for us to judge others and to be self-righteous. For others in this room, it might be really easy for you to forgive others and terribly difficult for you to forgive yourself. You might be terribly self-critical and judgmental of yourself, heaping condemnation on yourself. Both of those things are the same problem, just the different side of the coin. Because God's judgment is not intended simply to make you feel awful. It is intended in that conviction, when you do feel that draw on your heart, that I am in a pattern of sin, I'm doing things I ought not to do. It's not meant to leave you there. And how do we know it? Well, we know it from Paul for the remainder of Romans, that that conviction is a good thing. Because we remember in chapter one, God gave them over to their evil desires. Perhaps some of that conviction had fled those characters from chapter one. But if we find ourselves with this natural desire for justice and righteousness, and we have this pattern of sin, that is meant to lead us to repentance. God's judgment is meant to lead us to repentance. And that's what John 10.10 says. That anything that continues to make you think awful things about other people and pass condemnation onto them or think awful things about yourself to draw in self-hatred and self-condemnation. All of that is something that kills, steals, and destroys. It actually takes away from life. There's no satisfaction in you and I sitting as judge condemning other people. There's no satisfaction in you and I sitting as judge condemning ourselves. But the fact that God is the judge and he is righteous, and he's impartial, and that he's judging in order to lead to conviction, which will lead to repentance and draw us to life. That Christ came not simply to make us realize the nature of our sin, our brokenness, and to sit and rest in that for eternity. It's, it's the opposite. That resting in your sin and brokenness for eternity is hell. That's death. Abundant death, but Christ has come for you to have abundant life. And so while it is a tough passage to recognize that the wrath of God will pour out, okay? God, in his wrath, when he does pour out his wrath, it's always just and it's always impartial. But if you and I recognize that there's nothing you and I can do on our own merit to satisfy God, to make ourselves righteous, But we simply need to be like the tax collector in the gospel, in the parable, who says, here I am, God, a sinner. And then we are regenerated by the power of the Spirit, come to the table today, find that grace uh, through the sacrament of the Eucharist, and to be restored day by day. And if we take ourselves off that seat of judgment, what we'll find is abundant life. And what we'll point others to is abundant life. It is not our job to convict and condemn. It is our job to share the gospel, just as Paul is doing. God's Holy Spirit will convict because he is righteous and impartial, and his conviction is always intended to move to repentance. That's why people feel conviction. It's not for us to do. And that's really good news that God is the judge. And it's not you and it's not me because we are not those things. But we get to participate with God 
by simply preaching the good news, preaching the truth, being honest about what God has called us to do, which is to live holy and righteous lives. And then we get to rest in the fact that all of this work is intended to wrap up in John 10. God longs for people to be restored, drawn to him, that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so this idea of God's judgment is life-giving. It's not meant to tear us down. It's meant for us to live and to truly live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the righteousness by which you judge. God, I pray that um, your spirit would be convicting us in areas where conviction is needed, but that it would draw us to repentance, that we would uh, come to this, your table, recognizing our need for you. And Father, that you would restore us in and through uh, the sacrament, in and through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might have life and have it abundantly. In Christ's name we pray.